Let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin or on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. As Paul continues to talk uh, to the Corinthian church and uh, shape their understanding to that of the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take, then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Well, if I was to ask you what is the most valuable thing that you own, how would you answer? Perhaps it's your house, or uh, perhaps it's your car, or maybe a retirement account. I don't know exactly what you first thought of when I asked you that question. But I think as you hear the answer that I give you, I think you will agree with me that that is the most valuable thing that you own, and that is your human body. Think about that. Your body, a, a marvel of engineering, consisting of 35 trillion cells, 650 skeletal muscles alone. It is the instrument by which we see, we move, we talk, and we live. Our bodies have capacity for great acts of goodness and great acts of evil. We have the ability through our bodies to love and the ability to kill. Well, we are more than simply our bodies, right? We are humans. And a human is a, a soul or a spirit that is fused or united to a body. See, it's our body that expresses on the outside that which is going on on the inside. And if you are a, a Christian, God has made a new inside in you. He's given us a new spirit and joined us to his Holy Spirit and called us to live a radical new life. A life that takes place through our body. And Paul is talking to the church about the specific area of sexuality. Much like us, the Corinthians lived in a heavily sexualized society. And they are asking the question, does how I live in this area matter to God? And Paul is saying unequivocally, yes. See, sex is one of the most 
powerful ways in which we interact with others and has the capacity to bring a great blessing to you and to another person, as well as great harm to you and to another person. See, what Paul is trying to communicate to us is that Christ has bought us and called us to a life of freedom so that we could honor God, ourselves, and him. Excuse me, honor God, ourselves, and others with our bodies. So that's what we're going to look at in the brief time we have today. To answer the question, how do we honor God in this area with our bodies? And in order to answer that question, Paul touches on three specific points. Number one, why do we exist? Number two, how is it that we are to worship? And then finally, number three, who is it we are to love? How, why we exist, how we worship, and who we love. So let's dig in. Let's look at our first point, why we exist. Paul begins in verse 12 by saying, all things are lawful for me. Notice the quotations, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul is using phrases that are used in the Corinthian culture, where this was a saying that all things are lawful for me. Which in essence was this thought that he is free who lives as he wills. In other words, there is no bad man who lives as he wills, and accordingly, no bad man is free. Very similar to our culture that says to be true to yourself, live as you think that you should. And we need to understand a little bit about the Corinthian culture, that in the area of sexuality, gratification in the area of sexuality was to be expected. There was no shame, if you will, at going out and engaging, hiring uh, a prostitute to gratify one's sexual urges because all things are lawful. In fact, it was Plutarch that said a wife should not be angry with her husband if he is dissolute with a paramour or maidservant. She should reason that is respect that it is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery and wantonness with another woman. I don't quite understand the logic there, but nonetheless, if you were in Corinth, you would be nodding your head going, yes, this makes sense. It was accepted to gratify oneself sexually was part of life because all things are lawful. Now, was this happening in the Corinthian church? The answer is we don't exactly know. Paul doesn't bring up a specific instance like he did when uh, that instance of incest when a man was sleeping with his father's uh, wife, his mother-in-law. But Paul is touching on it because he understands that they cannot be helped but be influenced by the culture which is pushing upon them. This was the mentality of the world that they lived in. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, the belly that we have was meant for food. And by extension, the body that we have was meant for sex. It's part of, we have the apparatus, it's part of what we were meant for, right? 
And further, God will destroy them both in the end. In other words, it really doesn't matter because in the end, they're both going to be destroyed. My body is a disposable shell. And what I do with my body doesn't affect my spirit. That was the mentality of the Corinthian society. But Paul wants to set them straight with what God really thinks about these issues. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. In other words, Paul is saying, yes, we do have freedom in Christ. We are not slaves to the law anymore. We're not slaves to the opinions of others. We can live how we like. But we are freed not to live however we want, but rather freed to live according to God's plan for our benefit. In other words, there is a truth that exists outside of myself of how the world is, of how I am supposed to live. And I can live in accordance with that truth, or I can live out of accordance with that truth, and it has consequences. In another place, Paul said that we were called to freedom, Galatians 5.13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't just simply live however you think is best, because how you live can hurt yourself and others. Paul goes on in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, if I do things that are not in accordance with God's truth, these things have the power to enslave me. See, people inevitably become enslaved to their sins. And there are consequences to the decisions I make, especially in the area of sexuality. Paul says the body is not meant for sexuality, uh, sexual immorality, immorality, verse 13, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's saying that the body is not made simply for satisfying sexual urges. Rather, the body is meant to glorify and honor God. This word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, from where we get the word pornography. It refers specifically to sex uh, outside of marriage, a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, but extends to a variety of sexual vices, much like pornography. See, there is an incompatibility between the world and God's truth of why we actually exist. See, if you ask the world, if you ask people, why am I here? People who are not believers, most of them, when you boil it down, the answer would be to satisfy my desires, right? To live out my life, my truth, however I see fit. Now, to some people, the way they live it out is in a hedonistic sense, as much pleasure as I can get. For some people, they live it out in an altruistic sense, meaning loving others and doing good to others. But the rationale ultimately is it's about me and how I want to live my life. But the Bible is saying that the reason that we exist is not about me, but rather it's about him. 
that we were made and shaped for the express purpose of honoring God, our creator. We were made in the image of God, the Bible tells us. And if you lived in the ancient Near East, you would understand the ramifications of that. When in the ancient Near East, when someone became a king, what they would do is they would craft images of themselves. And they would place these images throughout the kingdom that they ruled so that everyone would know who was the king. In fact, I don't know if you remember the fall of Iraq when they were toppling the statues of Saddam Hussein and they were taking their shoe and they were pounding on Hussein's body and face. The reason those statues were put up is they were to be images to communicate to everyone, this is who is in charge. And in that same sense, we were made to be living images of our creator. And what did God say for us to do? To multiply and fill the earth. In other words, to be living manifestations that when creation looked at us, they would know who was the king. We were made for the Lord, not for ourselves. The problem, of course, being we sought to throw off our goal and to live for ourselves instead. Romans 1.21 puts it this way, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Each one of us has followed the path of Adam and Eve, living to choose what we want, ultimately becoming enslaved by our sin. And the result of that, the wages of our sin, is death. But Christ came and redeemed us through living a perfect life, through dying a substitutionary death on the cross and imparting to us his record of righteousness. He has justified us, set us apart, and given us a new identity, put us back on path, given us a new spirit that we would begin to live again in the way we were meant to be, honoring and glorifying him. And so the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The body is for Christ to honor him and belong to him and serve him. And Christ is for the body to inhabit it and glorify it. Verse 14 goes on, and God raised the, the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, this body is not disposable by any means. The future does not promise redemption from the body, but rather redemption of the body. So how we live and what we do with our bodies matters now as well as in the future. So with that line of reasoning, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members 
of a prostitute. With an emphatic never, he says not to do that. We have been united with Christ. As Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I do live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Each one of us are members of Christ. Think of yourself as an arm or a foot or a hand of Christ. He who is in us is seeking to interact with the world through us, through our bodies, in the way that we live our lives. And so to give control of ourselves to anyone other than Christ is incomprehensible. I don't know if you're familiar with the element known as chlorine. It's a critical element. It's essential to life. It's also very unstable as just chlorine, so it's often united to something else. So, for instance, in our stomach, we have hydrochloric acid. It's what's used to break down food. When you combine it with water, it creates hypochlorite, which is a a bleach and a disinfectant. In fact, when they did this and started using it, it was the first element to uh, disinfect tap water at the time of a typhoid outbreak in 1897. And since then, it has been used in all water, 99 point whatever percent of all water in the United States and any developed country has chlorine in it. In fact, chlorine has widely been credited with virtually eliminating outbreaks of waterborne disease, such as typhoid fever, dysentery, cholera, and Legionnaire's disease. Life magazine cited the filtration of drinking water and the use of chlorine as probably the most significant public health advance of the millennium. But you see, chlorine itself is very reactive with the human body and very toxic in the wrong form. It was Fritz Haber in 1915 who knew about the toxicity of chlorine and chose it as an agent of warfare for Germany. Haber supervised the installation of the first chlorine cast gas cylinders in the trenches that killed over 15,000 French and English. And it wasn't uh, but a couple of decades later that chlorine was reshaped into Zyklon B, which was used to exterminate millions in the Nazi concentration camps. That which was intended for good became an instrument of evil. In the same way, God has redeemed us from the empty way of life that we once lived. That what we used for evil might be used for holiness. See, we have been redeemed so that we might live for him. There are two aspects of grace. What God has done for us in Christ. One I'll call the design of grace. And the other I'll call the remedy of grace. What's the difference between the two? We're all familiar with the remedy of grace, right? We strive to live 
in accordance with God's word, and we invariably fall short. And rather than being overwhelmed with sorrow and sin, we're able to come back to Christ. And through his grace, he forgives us. We experience his forgiveness, and he draws us back to us. In fact, it's exactly what we did in our confession just a couple of minutes ago. But the remedy of grace is not the core intention of grace. Rather, the core intention of grace, what Christ did on the cross for us, is the design of grace. The design of grace is to reshape us in a new trajectory so that our lives would be characterized by holiness, obedience, and honoring the Lord. That is why he redeemed us from the empty way of life. So you see, my friends, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you were made for more than yourself. That everything you want and think you want, that if you were to get it, it would never be enough. That what you are looking for is Jesus Christ. And if you give yourself to him, and trust in his redemption, he will give you resurrection life and a new trajectory. But if you are a Christian, God is calling us to stand against our culture's view of sexuality. The world says that doesn't matter. But Christ says, honor me with your body. You may feel powerless in the area of sexuality. That pornography has its hold on you, continuing to draw you back, whether you are a male or a female. In your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you've crossed that line. And once you cross that line, it's easy to stay on that other side. You may feel that I have no choice but to follow the way of the world. And you feel defeated. But what we need to do is to trust in his design of grace. That you are his and he is in you. And his resurrection life will empower you to bring your sexuality under his authority. And by faith, we can obey him. Because he has designed, created, and redeemed us for holiness, so that we can honor God, ourselves, and others with our body. This leads you to my second point, how we are to worship. Now we know why we exist. Now we need to talk about how we are to worship. Paul continues in verse 16, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. We see this uh, where he's actually referencing Genesis 2.24, when God brought the first woman to the first man, and they were joined together, and they became one flesh. See, sex is a physical union with a spiritual dimension. Notice that they, in consummating their marriage, they become something else, one flesh. Sexual union creates an enduring bond. This word used here, joined together, kolan, implies that this man and the prostitute are wedded together 
even if there are no wedding vows. See, what the Bible is telling us is there is no such thing as casual sex with no enduring effects. No matter what Hollywood tells you. That's why we were designed for a lifelong commitment if God has called you to marriage. See, marriage is a metaphor. The best picture we have to describe the oneness that God yearns for with us. Notice in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This word joins, they become one spirit, our spirit united with Christ. And if you'll remember when God created the first human being, he took dirt and he molded a person. But that person wasn't alive until God breathed on him. And it says that he became a living soul. God through Christ has breathed into us his Holy Spirit and awakened us. He has joined himself to us. So this word kolao is not only about physical union, but spiritual union. That describing intercourse is also used to describe being joined to the Lord. And as we know, this joining doesn't occur until a commitment is made in the way God has called it to be. I have the privilege of performing uh, marriages. It's part of my job. And I have the man and the woman, and they stand, and they hold hands, and they make these commitments to each other. And this is one of the things that they say to the man and the woman. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live with her after God's commandments in the covenant of marriage? And will you love her, honor her, and cherish her in sickness and health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Of course, after the wedding, then is when the consummation occurs. The union, the physical union. And in the same way, Christ does not unite himself to us until we surrender our life to him. Where we say that we desire to be joined to the Lord forever. See, marriage is actually only until death do we do us part. But being joined to the Lord is forever. And so this word kalau has always been used to describe God's relationship with his people. Even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10.20, Israel is commanded to fear the Lord their God, to worship him alone, and to hold fast to him, to be joined to him. Indeed, when the Israelites go and they uh, worship other gods, God describes them as having committed adultery with another. When we worship other gods, we commit adultery. And so that is why Paul says in verse 18, to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's very interesting that in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul gives the same command, not to flee sexual immorality, but to flee idolatry. Idolatry and sexuality 
are co-referenced. Choosing to have sex with someone who is not your spouse is a form of spiritual idolatry. Because giving your body and your soul to someone else, that's what worship is. You know, it's interesting and when you, uh, if you're married in the Anglican church and you use their vows, they have a statement that says, with my body, I thee worship. Not in the same sense of God, but in the same sense of giving oneself entirely over to somebody else. See, when you're doing that, you're creating a bond that is only meant for God and for your spouse. With the spouse, is it idolatry? No, because that has been blessed by God. In fact, God is using it as a tool on earth to draw us closer to the Lord. But when you seek to do this, either with a prostitute or anyone else, it draws us away. It's a form of idolatry. It's actually a sin against the body. Now, what does that mean, a sin against the body? I mean, surely there are other types of sins against the body, like suicide or alcoholism. But it's, what it means is that Sexual immorality is different in kind than any other sin. For instance, alcohol, it's morally neutral, right? It's just a substance. One can decide to abstain from it at some point. And the effects of alcohol can be undone by abstinence. But by contrast, the relationship one established, once established by pornea cannot be undone. Intercourse with a prostitute, for instance, is uniquely body-joining, and therefore it is uniquely body-defiling. Sex with someone can't be undone. Let me give you an example. If you were to take these two pieces of paper and you were to bring them together in sexual union, and then you were to take these two pieces and you were to try to pull them together... It doesn't work. They've been joined to each other in a deep way, not without a lot of pain. And so what is Paul's solution? Flee. It's very interesting. With a host and variety of other sins, he says resist, battle against, fight. But in regards to this sin, he says run. Don't get close to it. I don't know if you've ever gone to the Grand Canyon. It's a wonder to behold. Every year, six million people flock to see this giant hole in the ground. And as such, every year there are deaths in the Grand Canyon. There's usually about 12 to 17 deaths in the Grand Canyon every year. Most of them are through heat stroke. But two to three, four every year are from accidentally falling. I don't know if you've, I don't know if we have the slide or not. Here's a picture. And what happens? It's from trying to take a selfie, right? Look at this giant hole. I want to go ahead and get as close to it as possible. 
And what happens is they get too close. In fact, in 2019, there were three deaths within weeks of each other. In uh, 2019, a 69-year-old woman, Cynthia Ackerley, fell 200 feet from the South Rim while trying to take a picture of herself in the Grand Canyon. What's interesting is the next day, the uh, Park Service really doesn't change anything. You would think that caution tape would start getting stretched out, right? It doesn't work that way. The place is just too big. John Quinley, a National Park spokesman, said people walk behind the railings, over the top, hang their feet over the edge. They see the beauty and they think they're immune to the danger. They want to get closer for a better look. So more signs is not necessarily going to encourage more safety. So life goes on. And some people get too close and they fall over. Many of us have gotten too close and fallen off that cliff. And we have the scars to prove it. So what do we do if we have? We trust the grace of Christ. I love 1 Timothy 2.13, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He continually woos us, continually sanctifies us, continually forgives us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. My friends, we cannot change the past, but we can move forward in the future. We must recognize that we belong to another, that Christ is our God. And so we must stay far away from the ledge. Can a man walk on coals and not be burned? For some of us, we're treating our sexuality like it's harmless. In what we watch, in what we read, in how we flirt at work, we're like going to the edge of the Grand Canyon. But Jesus says to fix your eyes not on the canyon, but on me. To let my word on sexuality be the last word. And God's word says there should not be a hint of sexual immorality or any impurity among God's people. So step back from the ledge. People may think that you're crazy. So be it. With your computer, step back from the edge. I've told people I have software on my computer, Covenant Eyes, and it's linked to a person, a friend of mine, that sees every single thing that I watch. He knows, and if anything is bad, it flags him, and he calls me. Well, Carlos, you're, you're a pastor. I mean, if anyone should have this thing licked, it's you. Precisely why I'm a pastor is why I do this. Because men much greater than me have fallen. Step back from the ledge. Who in your life, man or woman, is asking you the hard questions? And how you're interacting, not only with your computer, but your relationships at work and in the gym 
step back, honor the Lord with your body. Because Christ has bought us and called us to a life of freedom so that we could honor God, ourselves, and others with our bodies. Which brings me to my final point, who we love. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Instantly, as they heard this word, the temple of the Holy Spirit, they would think of God's temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. The place where God dwelt. And if you'll remember in the Old Testament, when God called David to build a temple and gave him the plans, they were down to the most minute detail. That everything had to be set apart and washed and holy. And indeed, there needed to be sacrifices of the blood of animals to ransom these elements. And once all of that work was done in 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Holy Spirit of God came and indwelt the temple. And what Paul is saying that you, if you are a Christian, are a dwelling place for God. And a dwelling place has to be made holy. Verse 20, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There was a price paid to buy you back from your old way of life. The price of the Son of God himself who gave his life in your place. You are the most valuable thing in the world. As they hear these words, bought with a price, they actually would have thought maybe about the slave auction. There was a slave auction in Corinth. But the picture that Paul is talking about here is not the picture of a slave being sold and set free, but rather being transferred from one owner to another. See, formerly we were slaves of sin, but we were bought for God. We've been redeemed out of bondage to sin and now belong to holiness. Freedom is not so much as being set free from something, but being set free for something else. For communion with God. But we are not simply property that's been bandied about. We have been bought to be God's children. And the proper response to what God has done through Christ is love. And love is obedience. To love someone is to care what they care about. And God has given his commands to us so that we might flourish. I remember the first house I bought with Lee Ellen after we got married. It was in Stanton, Virginia. It was this little rundown, dingy house. The woman uh, who had lived there actually had died in the house. She was a smoker, and so the walls were just... And she had lived in a wheelchair, so all of the walls were marred up by the wheelchair. It was small, it was dingy, it was broken down, but it was ours. And so we fixed it up. The walls, the floors the roof. We wanted to make it suitable to live our lives there. We brought our first child home in that house. We had a wonderful garden. 
We spent a lot of talk, cost, and time. It was literally a labor of love. And why did we do that? So that we could live in it. The reason that we were redeemed is so the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, through His Holy Spirit, could live in us. You and I are a holy habitation, and there is no one closer to you than your Savior. And so wherever I go, whatever I see, and whatever I do, He does with me. The reason that He fixed us up is to live a life of holiness, which is for our blessing. So we must respond in love to recognize that my old life and the way of the world is incompatible with his resurrection life in me. How do we love Christ? Step back from the ledge. Acknowledge that we belong to him. And be holy because he is holy. He has given us the power to resist sin and to live righteously. In conclusion, Christ has bought us and called us to a life of freedom so that we could honor God, ourselves, and others with our bodies. By God's grace, let us do so. Let us pray. God, thank you that you saw in us broken down houses, a holy habitation, and you inhabit us through your Holy Spirit, through the precious blood of Christ by which you bought us. God, we pray that we would live holy lives that honor you as we seek to live out our sexuality. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.